podcast ain't played nobody, Bill. Be careful what you solicit for money on the internet. Um, I guess it could be a lot worse given the context of that statement. Uh, before we jumped on here to record today's episode, we had a minor spike in our giving for our campaign. We have a GoFundMe up. The link is in the show description. The link is on my Instagram. The link is everywhere, hopefully. Uh, we are helping out Democracy Now. Or sorry, Oh, gosh, sorry. Democracy Prep a uh, charter school in Baton Rouge that was affected by the flooding. We uh, we saw a little spike in the giving, which is awesome. It's a season-long campaign, so there's, you know, it kind of dips, it kind of wanes. Uh, Bill, you went through this with, you know, raising money for your book. I said, hey, anybody wants to give more than $75 right now, we'll talk about your school for 15 minutes. Um, I didn't think it would happen right away before we got on the air. It did. It's That's super awesome. Um, the only problem is I feel almost like we're doing a disservice the Twitter user who used the same name to donate is called Avian Dentures, which I think is a very funny Twitter handle. It's just the close-up of the teeth and the Louisville logo. So thanks to Avian Dentures and the $80 donation of, from he or she, we're going to talk 15 minutes about Louisville. Bill, I don't know if Avian Dentures thought this through. We were probably going to talk about Louisville for 15 minutes today. At least, yeah. I mean, what, what else are, are we supposed to talk about in the college football universe right now? Everybody else I've talked, tried to talk about this week, I just get yelled at. Uh, they ain't played nobody, so we have to talk about Louisville. Uh, they certainly have played no, uh, somebody, and that's somebody being Florida State. Everything I wanted to couch or temper or restrain after Charlotte and Syracuse, I can, you can just kind of take the reins off of it, much like uh, the reins have been taken off of one Lamar Jackson. Yeah, I mean, what we call a transition in the biz there, Bill. <laughs> well, we, I mean, Florida State's hurt. You know, they, they are not anywhere near the full strength they were supposed to be, and that's fine. So, I mean, if you want to kind of temper it because of that, you can. Uh, but this was, this was murder. You know, this was uh, a, an absolute destruction. And, um, you know, to the extent that Florida State has had injuries, they, they still have what appears to be a good defensive line. Like when I was writing the preview last week, that was one of the things I focused on. Like if Florida State can still control the line of scrimmage on defense, then they can at least render Louisville uh, relatively inefficient. They, they didn't control the line of scrimmage at all. Um, Louisville, like, you know, as, as many times as uh, Brandon Ratcliffe or Lamar Jackson wanted to, I mean, they were downfield before they ever had to think about making a move. And then they made really good moves on top of that. Uh, but, you know, Brandon Radcliffe rushes 14 times, 64 of those, 64% of those carries get at least five yards. Lamar Jackson, you know, half of his do, and he's, you know, breaking into the, you know, 20, 30 yards downfield when he does. Uh, this was uh, very, very, very impressive. And on top of that, they sacked DeAndre Francois five times. Um, you know, they, they force him, they render him inefficient, and unlike Ole Miss, they kept it up. Um, so no, I, I mean, this was, they're not going to play like this every single week. That probably goes without saying, uh, but they pretty clearly de- demonstrated that their upside is, uh, monstrous right now. If Louisville persists, um, and I say that as if it's a cold or an ailment, if Louisville continues at this level and they win the ACC and they beat Houston in November and they make the playoff. Um, everybody ask, everyone's sort of asking for perspective and context right now. And it is still early, even though they stomped Florida State. Um, this has to be the greatest success story in modern college athletics when you talk about realignment and, you know, programs that pick themselves up and, and fundamentally change their identity. What Tom Yurch has done is absolutely amazing. 
straight up amazing. I mean, yeah. Louisville had history as a football program, and they had history as a basketball program. To go to the city of Louisville, which is an urban commuter campus, which has forever lacked the kind of passionate identity, at least in numbers, and, and Louisville fans, I'm not knocking it, but it, for years, you know this was a fact. They didn't have what Kentucky had. They didn't have what Indiana had. And then to build a palace in basketball, a, a palace in football for what it is, um, and to recruit to it, to, to you know, this was – people forget Charlie Strong was a sought-after coach who goes to Texas. He You know, he, he was so wisely selected to make his head coaching debut at Louisville. And really, you know, I, I mean, he's, he told me in that interview, if I don't get the offer from Texas, I'm probably still at Louisville. You know, there were other offers he had turned down to stay there. What Louisville has created is just – it's amazing. We yeah, cover like we'll talk about Houston in a minute and Cincinnati and stuff, but like this is this is the freaking blueprint. Yeah, they've given their coaches um, the tools they need to succeed, and they've hired. <clears throat> you know, I, I, when we when they hired Petrino a couple of years ago, I was uh, you know I don't want to say passive aggressive in talking about the hire, but basically you know uh, well actually I, re- I referenced the piece in the numerical yesterday, just that you know the, this. Uh, not only keeping uh, Rick Pitino um, after some of the things that went on there, but then also, you know, rehiring Bobby Petrino after um, his relatively kind of, you know, four year flirtation with other jobs. And, and, you know, I, I think I've mentioned before, like in 04, his second year, I went to the Liberty bowl uh, to watch them in Boise state, one of the best games I've ever seen. And, um, you know, Louisville fans were tired of him then, just in terms of the, his flirtation, his open flirtation with other schools. Well, that year, um, just for reference, that was the Auburn year. That was the plain tarmac. I that was uh, the first. I thought he did that after one year. <clears throat> I thought that was. I mean, regardless, though, that, yeah, like this was. They were winning. They were. They went eleven and one. They finished sixth in the country from Conference USA that year. Um, they beat Boise that day. It was just. It was fun. They had a fun product, and they were kind of annoyed with Petrino and kind of tired of him. Uh, at that point so um, you know the fact that they the fact that they brought him back I mean showed like that they believe there are two steps to to building a great athletic program number one giving the tools they need giving coaches the tools they need to succeed and number two hiring guys who will win above any other sort of character concerns or anything else and so you know that's that's not 100 percent good but it's worked, and um, you know I think having Lamar Jackson, who is just you know a remarkable college football player, um, and and he's he's fun, and he seems we don't know that much about him yet, but he seems like an, uh, an incredible representative of the school. Um, you know that that having him as the PR face kind of distracts us from any lingering negative feelings we have about Petrino, and that can only help. Um, but no, I mean they've got they've got just about everything going for them right now. They, you know, not only did they finally make a move to a major conference, a major, a major major conference. Obviously, they were in the Big East for a long time, uh, but that was always considered the sixth of the six. Um, aside from two thousand six, at least that that you know the the last place uh, power conference uh, in, in in among the power conferences, uh, they are in a a legitimately strong uh, conference for most sports. Uh, and they're thriving in, in a lot of sports. So, yeah, I, I don't want to completely ignore the the quote unquote character thing, but they uh, they are, are are playing really ridiculous football right now. And Petrino showed mercy. 
they could have scored 80 if they wanted to yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, you're exactly they, right. He, he, they called off the dogs at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Maybe maybe it's true. Maybe there is a maybe it, this is a new Petrino. Maybe I, I should stop talking about uh, his, his Maybe path. Maybe it was a fear of risk of injury. I mean, I don't know. I, and it doesn't matter, but he did, he did uh, lessen the pain. It could have been just – it could have been horrific. could have been mathematically the worst loss in Florida State history. Yeah. I and mean, like I, I don't know. They were. I don't know. Like, we'll have to ask Bud. Like the the history of when they were really bad. Like teacher school. I know that they were a doormat for a long time. And I think it was the '60s or whatever. Anyway, we have a bad habit of trying to put. I've already seen this happen in a couple of places where everyone's trying to figure out what Louisville is and what Lamar is, as if they're separate entities. A good football player and good. Football team is that is that basically the when a when a when a player is this dominant and I don't know if this is a bias against a non traditional power like if this was happening at Oklahoma or USC or Florida if this would be going on but it's not you're you're not supposed to parse it right now you're just supposed to enjoy it unless you're yeah. you know a Kentucky fan or a Florida State fan uh, you're just supposed to really really enjoy this and don't worry about you know, what, what the team is with or without him. or like, I mean, Michael Vick tweeting, I thought, was the most apt thing in the world because <laughs> yeah. the only context I can create for this is is the Vick, you know, it's it, they're, in, they're in your book, actually. Eventually here, 20 minutes into the show, I'll get to the show intro, but they're in your book, the 1999 Virginia Tech team, I believe. Yes. Yes. So the, that or the Rose Bowl Vince Young year. I mean, that's for Texas. You're not supposed to try and separate the quality of this. Look, I I think I did. I don't even know if I said this on the Sunday recap. I thought they were going to be an upper middle class team, a nice McMansion in the cul-de-sac, and they were going to help build out that section of the ACC. When you add one dynamic player and right. a coach as gifted as Petrino on offense, they can compete. I, I don't know if they're going to if they're going to be the next Florida State or Clemson perpetually but for right, yeah, right now yeah they're they're as good or better than those two teams well and technically we don't know if clemson is going to be clemson perpetually either because they've only been this you know a year and a half ago we were wondering if they were top 20 caliber so that's a very um, good point funny how so, we I mean, forget really, it, it all you know, when you get these breakthrough players especially at the quarterback position it changes the equation for a lot of stuff and and you know then they leave and then you find out one of the things that virginia tech was so remarkable, uh, you know, or one of the things that made them so remarkable, I guess, is the fact that they kept it going after uh, after Vic left. Like I was watching, uh, I had to make a quick trip uh, to see some family on Monday and on Monday night where or yesterday morning we were getting ready uh, in the hotel room. And um, like they they were showing, I think it was. I think it was O two Syracuse Virginia Tech, like a multi overtime game. Uh, Syracuse was still pretty good. It was a, it was a fun game to watch. And I no, I, I remember of, watching it in college. I sort of remembered it from college, but um, one of the things that I was that I kind of that kind of snuck up on me on Brian Randall was awesome. Like you yeah. have Brian, Brian, Brian Randall throwing for like you know two thousand yards a couple different years, uh, rushing for five hundred yards a couple different years. Uh, he was a really good quarterback, uh, and then they had Marcus Vick, who was obviously not his brother, but was uh, a very good uh, college quarterback. And they won ten or eleven games in ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand two, two thousand four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 
and um, you know they, they only did the one, two of those with uh, with Michael Vick. So the, that's that's kind of the next step here, and that's what made Beamer's reign so incredible. But you know, screw all of that for now. We've got at least another year and three quarters of Lamar Jackson, uh, and we're going to enjoy the hell out of this for now. I think it's um, we we're we're really bad at remembering things. And the Virginia Tech thing wasn't the Vic era. It was probably sometime between Randall and Marcus where the nation became aware of the team in Southwest Virginia that's going to, like, try and outflash Miami and the special teams and the defense. Like, all of that was in place with Michael Vick, but we didn't know about it. It didn't become a staple of, oh, Virginia Tech's playing on Thursday night. we got to watch that. You yeah, know, I can remember and, and closer to 05, 06, 07 even. That, that's when the whole nation knew, like, oh, man, so-and-so's playing at Lane Stadium? Oh, man. Yeah, it, it, I mean, Beamer Ball was obviously a thing before 99. That's how they, you know, kind of one of the ways they really kind of made a name for themselves recruiting in Virginia in the 90s uh, with special teams and all that. But, yeah, I mean, over time, Virginia Tech became the school of mobile, awesome, really fun-to-watch quarterbacks and a defense that was faster than you and would try to take your head off. Um, and so Louisville, I, you know, it's speaking of, you know, we were talking about Clemson a second ago and how, you know, the present tense, we forget just how recent it was that we were doubting Clemson. I, beginning in November last year, I was doubting Petrino and trying to figure out why he was going after mobile quarterbacks because he didn't seem to know how to use them very well. Um, and Lamar Jackson last year, he had like two awesome games. And, but, you know, because of the bowl game, especially, we, we were like, oh, we, you know, we've seen the future. Uh, we know what he's going to be like now. It doesn't usually work that way that, you know, you have two good games one year and then suddenly you're, uh, you know, you're that awesome forever and ever and ever. Uh, but, I mean, he, he wasn't really able to hold on to the starting job. It went back and forth between like two or three guys. Um, he had so, a, a couple of like he was pretty good against uh, Florida State last year in a loss, but. Um, I mean, really, his only good games before his only good game game before uh, the A and M game last year, where he was really effective both running and passing, was probably against Stanford. You know, he would he rushed really well against Kentucky, but he was eight for twenty one passing, and he, um, you know, against Boston College last year, he had fifteen rushing yards and two interceptions. Like this was, uh, I, I was worried that heading into this year that we were really that we were going too much too far based on what he did against an A&M defense that still didn't stop the run all that well uh, in the bowl game last year. And, I mean, my God. Also, also a bowl. A bowl. Yes. A bowl. A bowl bowl in which A&M had zero interest in as their quarterback situation was rotting (laughs) from the inside out. Um, I I was only here for a little bit of that. I think I'd already left to go to the Rose Bowl when that game went on or – but I remember talking to all the media that was here in Nashville and how overall just completely disinterested A&M was in being here and playing in that game. So I remember looking, watching that game, maybe on an airplane, and thinking, awesome, dynamic performance, bowl, exhibition, preseason game, doesn't matter. Probably mattered. Probably mattered. I can't pull up the S&P offense for some reason right now at Football Outsiders, but um, this it is... Okay, thank you. Um, So looking real fast at the next couple weeks, I just want to talk about their defense real fast. Take away Clemson. So that's two weeks. Um, And then they have a bye. You're looking at Marshall, Duke, NC State, Virginia, Boston College, and Wake. 
before they get to Houston on November 17th. Um, by benefit of the schedule and of a very talented defense, this could be one of the numerically, statistically best defenses in the country, in addition to having the most dynamic offensive player. Yeah, and they, I mean, they've got hurdles, obviously. Like, I mean, I just said how well Boston College did against Jackson last year. So, you know, you, that, that the problem for BC in that game is their offense will have to score, but... Um, yeah, because yeah, they could do well and limit him to 17 points and then lose the game. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, when you glance at the schedule, it's obviously a, a, a two-game schedule at this point, Clemson and Houston. Um, and, you know, I'm just I'm glad we don't have to wait very long for Clemson. I was actually, when I was re- previewing this ga- that game on, like, Friday, I was talking about, you know, a tricky trip to Marshall in between. Marshall had one of the strangest games I've ever seen against Akron last week. Uh, in that they were dominating, it was uh, uh, like twenty-one-seven or or something, uh, or twenty-four to ten or something, where they were pretty comfortably in control. Uh, then their quarterback just gets destroyed on a sack and strip, and it, it's returned for a touchdown, uh, and they lose sixty-five to thirty-eight, uh, despite yardage being relatively even. Uh, it was just a strange, strange game. Akron, you know, got some turnover bounces and whatnot, but uh, suddenly. Uh, you know, an offense or suddenly a Marshall defense that gave up 536 yards in just 66 plays against Akron. Probably not going to have too much to offer against Louisville this week. But we we do get to see Louisville on the road. So that's another thing we can at least kind of check off, make sure there's nothing drastically different between, you know, how they play at home and how they play on the road. I'm guessing they're not going to sweat going into Huntington. I could be wrong. Thank you for your donation, Avian Dentures. We're going to make this a recurring segment throughout the season. So I'll randomly pop in on Twitter before we record, which is usually Wednesday or Thursday. Um, if anybody wants to make a donation for the dollar amount I ask for, uh, give me a team name, and then we will open the show with your segment. Um, please, you just keep your money in your pocket, Eastern Michigan fan. I know you're out there. Hey, man, they're 2-1. They're and one. God damn it, Bill. Um... Okay, so we got that out of the way. Uh, welcome to Podcast Ain't Play Nobody. This is a college football marriage of numbers and words. Um, that's Bill Connolly. He invented the S&P Plus analytics system. He is the proprietor of SB Nation's Football Study Hall. And he's also the author of the forthcoming book, The 50 Greatest College Football Teams Best. of All Time. Best. Best. Sorry. Best. Best. Sorry. We're, we're going to keep this in. And it's not actually best at all, but anyway. I know. I was getting to the asterisk joke, and then you jumped me on the copy editing. Uh, my name is Stephen Godfrey, and I can't even get the name of my co-host book right. Um, again, we've mentioned the GoFundMe campaign for Democracy Prep. Uh, you can visit us on SB Nation. Just search for Podcast Ain't Played Nobody to go to that hyper link and give us some of your hyper money. Um, we're going to go a lot of places this week. Um, we've obviously touched on, on one Louisville Cardinals. I'm going to also touch on one team that's in the playoff projections right now. I went to Cincinnati last Thursday. Feels like forever ago. Uh, I wrote not so much about the game, although it was kind of fun and interesting. Greg Ward Jr., obviously a little banged up. Um, and before things got super wonky and Cincinnati tried to press their passing game back into it with, like, two pick sixes in five seconds or whatever it was, <laughs> it, was a, it was a close, interesting game. Um, I went up there to write about the ongoing candidacy of those two schools as they are sort of considered the de facto front runners for Big 12 expansion. Um, you could read about, uh, read about all that. I don't want to get into that. We've beat it to death. But so here's the funny part of that. I go up there, the conceit of what my sources have told me on multiple sides of this. So around Houston, outside of Houston, around Cincinnati, outside of Cincinnati is 
that Houston, for all the all the check marks on their side right now of like you know diet, like awesome coach, uh, awesome momentum, all the all the stuff that would you would think would the Big Twelve would go? Oh yeah, we need that. Um, they're actually being met with a lot of resistance, uh, and most of it is stemming from the old Big Eight contingency inside of the Big Twelve. Um, if you remember this summer, obviously Texas came out publicly and supported them. Texas Tech did as well. The governor of Texas. Um, I kind of take a small leap of logic based off of what I've been told in my story that they could curry favor with Baylor. There's obviously there's a connection there. Mac Rhodes was the AD who helped build this current uh, Houston machine. He went to Missouri and then he went to Baylor, and then TCU will pr- would probably follow suit with with Texas if that happens. They still need four more votes. They need four more votes to get in. They don't know where those four are going to come from. It's, uh, it's going to be really interesting. I bring this up to, to, to push it forward, Bill. Can you name me a Power Five conference that looks to be the clear ass end of the pack right now in terms of playoff contention? Could you name me one? Uh, SEC. Wow. Probably Big 12. Wow. I think it's probably the Big 12. Okay. Just hypothetically. Now I'm no I'm no statistician, all right. I am just a mere sports writer. <laughs> but I think I've done the math. If Houston was in the Big Twelve right now, they are a playoff contender. The Big Twelve would have a playoff contender right now. I think I just let me check my math. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, does that seem odd to you? What that the Big Twelve? Would uh, stumble backwards into actually having a chance to land a top 10 team and say, you know what? No, actually, I think we're good. Yeah, that's um, now. OK, I, I really my my instinct here is to make is to just recklessly make fun of the Big 12. I will say that if I am Oklahoma State, um, this would give me like in terms of self-interest, this would give me massive pause thinking of, you know, yeah, let's bring. Uh, Houston into the Big 12 where they where Tom Herman can basically pull a, a Howard Schnellenberger and make it the state of Houston and we can't recruit there anymore. Um, I get it. Like, I, I, I understand the hesitance, but uh, Mike Gundy isn't voting for this, first of all. Um, this is, a, I, I guess, a, you know, I, I don't know who the it's hell the, is. It's uh, the university presidents will convene. I, I know that's what it's supposed to be. I don't know who the hell actually does anything in the Big 12. But, um, yeah, every, so I can answer that real quick. Every, so the, yeah, the official vote is that the university presidents convene. You need eight out of ten possible votes to, right. to, to get in. Every school's politics are obviously a little different. Now you assume, like, Texas plays their hand publicly. You know what they're going to do. Um, I don't know who is the, I don't know if it's just like a T-Boone hits like a big button somewhere in like a skybox and he instructs the president what to do. I don't know exactly what the politics are in Stillwater, but I didn't even really punch around it in the story. It's Oklahoma State specifically that looks like that one team on the Mendoza line for Houston. So if the Cougars come in and they maintain what we assume they're going to do, we also assume that Herman would stay if they're a Big 12 school, at least for a couple more years. Oklahoma State is the one school Bud Elliott thinks would suffer, that I think would suffer, that people in the Big 12 think would suffer, and then every school underneath them. So, you know, K-State, Kansas, Iowa State, and so on and so forth. That's I, So I get them not doing it. But what does Oklahoma have to lose? Um, I mean, not much. Like, they are kind of above 
they are they are a brand no matter what. So yeah, I mean they they would potentially lose some recruiting battles, but they they fight battles in in California and Las Vegas and all throughout the country too. So that's not going to hurt them all that much. Uh, I mean, they, they're probably getting kind of used to being the perpetual Big 12 favorite each year now, and, and that could change. Although, well, I, I, I've struggled to talk about Houston right now because it does feel like everything is very short term. But yeah. at the moment, um, the, you know, OU isn't hurt, wouldn't be hurt at all by including Houston because it would kind of bail them out. They were the Big 12's biggest hope right now, and, and they're one and two. Baylor, by the way. Still technically on the board as a playoff contender. We're just going to continue not talking about Baylor. I'm going to give that one more week before we actually dedicate a topic on the show to it because there's nobody that wants that except Baylor. There's nobody in college football, in the media, in the Big 12. There's nobody that wants to have to, to push pull support behind Baylor. There's, it, oh, my God. It is a nightmare scenario. Yeah, they are. By the by, the way, they host Oklahoma State this weekend. So, uh, if the Pokes want to help us out a little bit, uh, that's what. Yeah, so one more week, one more. So, week. but anyway, so yeah, I mean, right now, uh, on a self interest level, I can kind of understand what certain schools are thinking. But my God, this is you're talking about like people. They were they they listened to Arkansas State. Okay, they. Uh, they decided we're going to expand. Uh, we're going to look over this grade of C, uh, this C grade list of potential options. Uh, and we're going to really, really hope to find kind of a diamond in the rough situation there because we've publicly committed to expansion, even though the pool of candidates hasn't changed at all. And we're going to look really stupid if we don't expand. Uh, we're going to really look really stupid no matter what, because we're the big 12, but the, <laughs> Houston cannot have, you know, we, we talk in the past about how like um, how, how just quality on the football field has impacted expansion. I mean, I've mentioned how like, you know, Missouri in 2001 doesn't get an SEC invitation, but with the job Gary Pinkle did of, of building the program up uh, helped, you know, that was that was probably a very large percentage of Missouri's case for joining the SEC in the first place. And granted, Maryland Rutgers kind of shoots this down a little bit, but like Utah, that's how you know that helped them get into the Pac-12. Um, there are examples of of rising quality, uh, how how it really solidifies your case. Houston could, in two years, Houston has would could not possibly have raised their quality any more than they possibly could. Um, they've done absolutely every, they've checked every box you could possibly look for if you're the big 12. Um, and big 12 might actually say, you know what? We're good without you national title contender. We, we think we're okay. Uh, having no playoff contenders whatsoever. That's great. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it is kind of, it is very, very, very big 12. And it's their own damn fault for for publicly committing in the first place. Nobody was asking them to publicly commit to expanding. They had actually done the opposite and said they weren't going to expand a month earlier. Standing uh, so in that ballroom in Dallas with all the stuff that was going on around Baylor and Mac Rhodes being appointed, that was the expansion was not being discussed. It was something that we would when you would go and do Radio Row and people would ask about the state of the conference and you would speculate or kind of armchair quarterback like, oh, you know, maybe what would a 14-team Big 12 look like in terms of competitiveness? And everyone was talking about the money problem, but, I mean, no one – all this fervor started, they did it. Yeah, they did it on I mean, the own. next day I was in a car going to the University of Houston to write about it, but they did it. Don't blame me. No, like they 
this is completely self-created. They, you know, it isn't, you know, I, I, and again, I understand the, the arguments against adding Houston simply because it was the argument against expanding at all. Like that's great that Houston's good. Why would you want another Texas school? But then they committed to expanding. And then all the Texas schools said, no, we're good with another Texas school. And yet they're still going to go back and, and then not expand and not pick Houston and all these other st- things. And it's just embarrassing at this point. Well, I had an AD tell me it, it boiled down to this. Is Oklahoma State better than, t- than TCU? And this was after I wrote the story. I was texting with somebody. That's why it's not in the piece. But it's a, good, it's a really good way to, to, to put it. Is is did, did TCU coming in? West Virginia was never going to come in and raid Dallas and Houston. They were never going to come in and become the 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 uh, the power in the East. That sounds like something in Game of Thrones, but that wasn't going to happen. But is TCU after a couple years in? Are they a better program, a more attractive program, a more talented program than Oklahoma State? That's the real question here, and a lot of people think the answer is yes. I mean, I think the answer probably is yes, but how much how much of that is uh, because uh, Oklahoma State got crowded out a little bit by TCU, and how much of it is it is it that um, you know Gary Patterson made a made two basically two co coordinator hires that turned his program around, and Oklahoma State hasn't had the same offense since Mike Yurcich took over. Um, you know, also I, I kept those co coordinators. And I mean, that, that, that moment, TCU was probably going to improve that year anyway, because they were pretty unlucky the year before. Um, but that, that, that hire that, or that co-hire, I guess, um, you know, brought a, a massive identity to, uh, to, to TCU, changed that program around dramatically. Um, and I mean, OSU still got a solid, interesting passing offense with Mike Yersich. They haven't been able to run the ball in about four years. Um, okay. Two, but <laughs> four. Uh, so, I mean, how much of it is which? How much of it is that, you know, are they losing recruits to TCU or do they just not make as good uh, as good an offensive coordinator hire? Hey, Bill, how would um, North Dakota State actually do in the Big Ten or the Big 12? <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been, for a long time, I've been trying to figure out a, a good structural way to uh, bring FCS into my rankings. Yeah. Um, it, it would not be able to come from play by play, uh, because it just, I, I don't have the play by play, but I, you know, what I did over the summer when looking at like the historical, the estimated S and P rankings for different years and all that, uh, going back to, I think 1970, um, that estimation is pretty decent. And I could at least then use that for FCS to kind of just form a general structure to where we can kind of see the overlap and everything. Uh, it's so hard because there are so few data points. Even now with more FBS versus FCS games than ever before, uh, it's still just very not very well connected. And so it, it's a very, very tricky thing. And therefore, I always lean on Sagarin for this. Um, North Dakota State has been a top 50 program in Sagarin for like, I think, four straight years now. Um, you know, they've survived two of the better FCS pro- teams so far. Uh, this year, and then they went to Iowa and they beat Iowa. They are currently fifty fourth, which is a which is a low spot for them. Um, but they they are fifty fourth, fifty sixth, Indiana, fifty eighth, Northwestern, fifty seventh, Minnesota. Um, a team they're two and one against. Right, and then just looking up, they're only six spots behind Penn State. Um, Jesus, I mean. 
like, and again, this is low. 54th is low for them. Usually they're in the 30s and 40s. And I think one of those years, I think maybe, uh, what was it, 2014 maybe, uh, they're kind of, their peak was either 2013 or 14. Let's see, they were, they were 32nd in Sagarin in 2014. And they were, oh, yeah, right, right, right. In 2013, they were 17th uh, between Ohio State and Wisconsin. So, you know, Sagarin's kind of weird. Uh, it's, and, and again, it's hard to come up with anything really, really strong tying these together because the, 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 the connectivity isn't really there. But I, I mean, what more do you need to know they wouldn't probably be favored to win the big 10 West every year. Uh, but they'd be right there. They had a won it in, in 2013, probably. Uh, and they would have probably gone about seven and five or eight and four, at least in 2014, 15 and probably 16. So yeah. I mean, they're, they, I think they've proven absolutely everything they need to prove uh, to, to suggest that they'd be a, a strong piece uh, in a Big Ten West. TLDR, this is not the stupid could Alabama beat the Jaguars conversation. It's no. not. There's, First there's... of all, in this case, Alabama has beaten the Jaguars at least once. <laughs> like, we've seen them beat Iowa. We, we saw them beat, you know, Kansas State, whatever. They were defending Big 12 champions, but they'd lost a lot of pieces, whatever. They, we saw them win that game. Um, they have passed just about every single possible test they could pass. It's kind of amazing. Um, talked to a couple ADs this week about different stuff. One of them, <laughs> one of them was so politely emphatic. <laughs> it was the AD of a current top 20 team about, no, uh-uh, no. Like he was, yeah, and I, and I, t- I call these guys and I get candid, I get candid quotes. Um, and my, my, uh, my anonymous sourcing policy is that I don't like to run anything that's from an anonymous quote that's disparaging of another party because then it allow it's, it's like basically the journalism version of an internet comment. And so if someone wants to talk, but if someone wants to open up and be very honest and frank about a complex situation in sports where the reader benefits from their knowledge and they don't have to worry about the politics, that to me is what Anon quoting is for. So this person, even, even anonymously quoted, was so polite, but he was just like, Mm-mm, no, not doing that. I'm going to go to whoever I need to. I'm going to find the extra $400,000 and I'm going to schedule someone else instead. I don't care. Um, no, yeah. No, and I pointed out it is more than 400 because, um, oh gosh, it's in the column or it's in Roger Sherman wrote a piece about it. I think they made 300 or $400,000 for going to Iowa um, and winning. And that's kind of been their MO of doing it at like, it's been Northwestern, it's been Iowa, it's been Iowa State, it's been, they, they, they like to focus on Midwest teams because it helps them in recruiting, but. Right. There's other people on that. Uh, Minnesota, they've they've murked Minnesota a couple times. Um, they uh, the price tag is floating around three to four hundred. I think the price tag for uh, you know Auburn to play a Sun Belt team is about one point two, and so that's the difference. Um, still though, you do it, you do it, yeah. flat out. The math is always going to favor you spending more money to play Louisiana Monroe than it is ever going to you to save $600,000 and lose to North Dakota State because I had a couple people on Twitter, actually someone on Twitter this morning, I think, when we talked about, I mentioned the NDSU thing in my column. And so, okay, uh, a listener, uh, Scott Smith said, why hasn't North Dakota State started charging more to come, you'd think? I'd come watch Ole Miss lose to North Dakota State before I came to watch <laughs> Wofford. Um, no, you don't watch them lose though. That's the that's that, and that's it in a, in a nutshell. Is that we 
even and this is all of us. I'm putting my arms around all y'all listening. We're the exception, okay? This is more for the the meat and potatoes, less informed populace that is going to go to a man. I'm trying to think of a really good example. Uh, I don't know a Tennessee game and say North Dakota State FCS. Oh, we should stomp their ass, and that still exists. It just does. No matter how many, you know, they can go to, they can put game day in Fargo. It doesn't matter. There's, there's a inherent perception, a, a bias against the program based off of the little acronyms and just people being stupid. I mean, it happens all the time. How many fans do you know in your life that are still rooted in 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 program biases that are just solely rooted in what they remember from the 1980s or 60s? Right. You know, right. And I mean, the other part of this is. You you don't really from a record standpoint you don't really get any credit for beating them because then even None. if you beat them you don't get to go out and then schedule a Wofford and have it count towards bowl eligibility you you've already beaten your FCS team it just happens to be one that's better than a majority of FBS teams yeah just not but yeah okay so 2006 they beat let's see they beat Ball State 29-24 and they lose to Minnesota 10-9 2007 they whoop Central Michigan 44-14 uh, and they beat Minnesota 27-21. Uh, 2008, they narrowly lose to Wyoming. Maybe that's why Bull take the, took the Wyoming job. Um, 2009, they lose to Iowa State. So, yeah, now they're in a major slump, by the way. Yeah, huge slump, uh, losing uh, respectable games. 2010, uh, they beat Kansas 6-3. 2011, they beat Minnesota by 13. Uh, 2012, they beat Colorado State by 15. Uh, 2013, they come back to beat Kansas State with that like 38-minute driver or whatever it was in the late in the game. 2014, they whoop Iowa State by 20 again, um, and then yeah, and then and then this. So uh, yeah, don't play them. There's absolutely nothing to gain from playing them. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's not a meme. It is a meme, and it's funny. And they don't even really need it either. I mean, of course, they they like it. But, I mean, they are already – I love their scheduling. They are basically – we'll take on all comers in the FCS, even if it means losing at Montana to start 2015. Well, guess what? They only lost one more time uh, the rest of the year. So far this year, they've already beaten Charleston Southern and Eastern Washington, two of the better FCS teams in the country. Uh, And now they start Missouri Valley play. Missouri Valley is obviously pretty good. So, um, yeah, Yeah, that was – they're, we're gonna we're gonna prep. We're, we might lose a couple games, and then we're gonna win the damn title in December or January, I guess. The uh, I stumbled across all the local media coverage of the scheduling problems on the back end on the FCS end, and that's that. For a while, they felt like it was just brutal and and just sort of kind of the way Alabama would feel playing, you know, a a, a bad FCS program. That's they were blowing the doors off of other FCS programs in non Valley play. And so they went. They they made it a point to go find the Eastern Washingtons and the Montanas and the power programs across the country, and create these showcases. And I'm, by the way, I'm sure ESPN had a hand in that as well. I'm totally fine with some sort of kickoff classic on the that that last August Saturday, where you give me two matchups of the four best teams in in FCS. I'm totally fine with that. So if you every year you're throwing in, I don't know, like. Uh, Eastern Washington, Montana, Montana State sometimes, North Dakota State, and um, Sam Houston, and I don't know. I'm trying to think off the top of my uh, – Charleston Southern. I'm sorry. That was one I was thinking of. Like throw all those guys in there and then 
you know, I don't know, put it in, well, don't do a neutral site, put it on campus. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's a great showcase. It's a great idea. So, yeah. um, so right. um, one quick thing we do need to get through to some reader questions because we've gotten a lot of them this week. Um, but one other quick thing first. So on, on Monday, I wrote a piece about how Ohio State whooped Oklahoma and, and looks like the, you know, the reckless killing machine that we're used to again from Ohio State. Hell yeah. One of the first responses on Twitter was, yeah, but Oklahoma stinks. Uh, and so then yesterday in the numerical, I, one of the things I focus on is that Miami, <clears throat> the three teams that have moved up the most in S&P, despite the fact that S&P is still half, over half preseason projections, uh, therefore it's kind of hard to make any massive moves um, there are still Colorado Mem- and Memphis have, I think moved up both 18 spots so far with the way they've played and Miami's moved up 16. And so, you know, that combined with the fact that we all thought Appalachian state Miami was a major upset possibility and Miami just stomped Appalachian state use that as a reason to kind of lead the numerical with Miami, uh, talking about here are the things they're doing really well. And, and here are the challenges they faced uh, in trying to keep this up now. And, and basically the first 20 responses were all LOL. Who have they played? Okay. So <laughs> I realize this is like asking people to change instincts, but it's three weeks in the options are talk about teams that are doing well, uh, even despite the fact that we really don't know anything about the teams they played, you know, we don't know anything about anybody right now or just not write a goddamn thing until November. I'm going to talk about the teams that are doing well. Uh, but Jason helped me this morning by, by creating a template of, Oh, Hey, here, look, everybody in the top 25 ain't played nobody. So now that we have that established, let's move on and actually talk about teams doing well. Cause Miami looked awesome. That same team that with that same defensive line that really uh, gave Tennessee major fits and, and Tennessee's a completely different uh, subject, obviously. Um, they almost beat Tennessee in Knoxville. They welcomed a Miami team that has not accomplished what Tennessee has over the last couple of years and has nowhere near the expectations. Miami walked in and was up 21, nothing after like 11 plays um, and one by 35. That is an accomplishment. Now, I mean, whooping Florida A&M and Florida Atlantic, less of an accomplishment, although, you know, all you can do in that situation is, is uh, destroy them quickly, and they did. Um, Miami has looked as awesome as they can possibly look with the schedule they've faced so far, and that's worth mentioning. It just is, and the fact that they've been able to, to move up to 15th in S&P, awesome. Shows that they've done really good things, and now they face, like, an absurd, ridiculous October, and maybe they lose four games and it's over, but the whole point was, hey, look, they're doing better right now. Let's, well, let's keep an eye on them. Uh, so I'm going to continue doing that. The end. Okay. Feel better? You want, to do do. Que- you want questions or schedule? Uh, questions. We've got a lot. Yes. Pick um, one. All right. Let's see here. How about we start? Well, uh, the <laughs> this is an obvious one uh, since we've already sort of talked about it. Our friend Trevor on Sunday. Uh, hello, Stephen and Bill. First of all, first off, I'm a huge fan of your show. As an Ohio Bobcat fan, I enjoy the 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 hashtag brand you guys have created, uh, giving attention to G5 teams in the FBS, as well as the exploration you do uh, the business and psychological mechanisms of the college football world. Uh, that's why I figured you would both have fun with this question. And like I said, we've kind of already answered it a little bit. North Dakota State's win over Iowa on Saturday got me thinking, as it probably did for many people, about how feasible a move to FBS would be for the Bison. Having won five straight national titles and six straight wins against FBS teams, the Bison have clearly set a precedent that they could compete at the FBS level with minimal adjustments, similar to Georgia Southern and Appalachian State. My two questions, what would be the most 
likely way for North Dakota State to get into FBS and what would be the most feasible way for them to succeed. A Mountain West spot seems like an intuitive landing spot if, if a team like Colorado State jumps to the Big 12, but would the Bison succeed if the same happened with the AAC? Are the Max Sunbelt or Conference USA feasible options due to travel budgets? Um, are the Bison an independent candidate, and what are some of the limitations that might keep NDSU in FCS long term? I think they might actually uh, excuse themselves out of the Mountain West if they if if there's some magic scenario in which they pick. I think that they know they do really well with recruiting in the Midwest. Yeah, and maybe the MAC fits them. I don't know if if they feel if the MAC feels like that NDSU fits them, but I definitely think that NDSU would want to stay, maybe keeping exposure strong. Uh, not the Mountain West is a graveyard. It's just a little tougher and a little a little bit different. Um, it may strip away some of the uniqueness. Um, the, I know the CUSA would grab them. I know that the AAC would be interested, but probably not direct. The AAC is not really in the business of going direct from FCS. So you would you would spend maybe a year or two in the CUSA. Um, to answer the question on how, yeah, it, could, it would definitely happen. I mean, at, at this point, the the pickle they're in with the scheduling, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, they, they've almost played themselves out of out of FCS. Uh, eligibility if they want to try and bring in a revenue game I don't know what they're going to do because they've got to make that money they've got to get that half million dollars in in non-conference play but I mean they have Oregon on the schedule in 2020 and that's it and and I I mean I just wrote a piece that says that no AD right now is going to is going to take that phone call so they got Colorado at some point out there in like 2024 or something but yeah um no, I, you know, just from a pure logistics standpoint, um, they're in the Missouri Valley. The, 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 uh, the footprint of the Missouri Valley compared to the MAC is very, very similar. I would say, you know, from a football perspective, that, I'm not going to say that would be an uninspiring jump um, because, I mean, you know, the MAC's solid and it's better than Missouri Valley. Um, but I know that, you know, the thought here is you've beaten all these FBS teams in a row, you dream really big. I think from a feasibility standpoint, the MAC makes by far the most sense. Uh, by the way, this Conference is not USA, just football. Conference USA is only interested in you if you're in a big city in the South, whether you've had, and they don't really seem to care at all about whether you have quality football. Um, well, keep in mind, too, this is not just football. Right, and, and, I, and I actually, yeah, I was prepared for that. Uh, last four years in basketball, North Dakota State has won 24, 26, 23, and 20 games. Um, so... I, I don't ask me about their baseball program. I've got absolutely no idea about oh, any I they have one. anything else besides uh, men's basketball and football. But the uh, University of Wyoming doesn't have a baseball program. I doubt that NDSU has one. Oh, I'm pulling it up now to find out. Let's find but, out if I'm right. Um, but no, I mean, in the two sports that matter above all else, they have been. You know, obviously they've been awesome in in in, um, in football, but they've been uh, they've they've established themselves pretty well in baseball too, and that's pretty cool. I mean, baseball, damn it, basketball. Um, they do have a baseball team. Yeah, ha, ha. they have a wrestling team that I believe is pretty decent, if I remember right, from like Missouri encountering them here and there. Ooh, ooh, ooh! If they go to the MAC, Missouri, and they could be uh, wrestling conference rivals. Sweet. There you um, go. But let's see. So. They actually had a pretty decent baseball program for being in the Missouri Valley. They went they went twenty nine and twenty four. It appears last year. So there's that. Um, no, I think the MAC would by far make the most sense for them, and um, and I, I hope they do it because what else can they prove? 
at, at this point uh, it, where they are. Like, if they want to win 20 national titles, great. But, um, you know, this is their chance to, to challenge themselves further. There's a lot of NDSU for one show. Uh, Josh Van Cleef says, um, hey, guys, you're awesome, super, super awesome, awesome, awesome. And then he says, uh, Louisville and Houston play on a Thursday night, November 17th, both on short rest. Houston comes off Tulane while Louisville has Wake Forest, both on the 12th. This game is very possibly going to be a college football playoff elimination game, especially for Houston. Um, he, He wrote this two days ago. It might be for Louisville as well. My question is, how and when will the coaches start game planning, simulating, et cetera, for each other? I know Coach Beak says one game at a time, but I'm not buying that a, that a coach would be crazy enough to try and game plan for Lamar Jackson in four days. Wake and Tulane are both showing signs of improvement, too. Does that impact their approach for the month of November? Cheers, Josh Van Cleef. Um, so, yes and no, Josh. Um, they will definitely not short sell either Wake or Tulane. Um, Tulane especially is going to run an offense that Houston – Houston sees with Navy, but it has some unique wrinkles in it. So from a talent standpoint, yes, they should both win their games. But um, everybody has a different style on short week prep. Um, Herman has a lot of experience with this because the AAC plays a lot of Thursday and Friday night games due to their uh, ESPN contract. Actually, that was one of the first questions I asked him last year when we sat down. Um, What they'll probably do is have – uh, film breakdown ready to go during the previous game week. They will not install a plan for the players until the very end of that game. So, was it they play two lanes? So, Houston will go in, and I'm sure Petrino and those guys are doing the exact same thing. So, basically, they will have it'll be double time behind the scenes away from the players. They're going to be breaking down the film, doing kind of rough scouting and that kind of stuff. And then they'll basically take no time off as soon as those games are over, get back home immediately. Was it at Tulane and at Wake? Uh, I think that actually matters a lot, um, and it's enough for us to stop and check. Okay, Wake Forest is at Papa John's. Yeah. And I think Houston is at Tulane, but we'll double-check real fast. No, they okay, they're both home games. That actually helps a lot. So they'll immediately turn around on Saturday – and, I, you know, I don't know, those games don't have times yet, but let's say they're both probably not like super primetime games. That evening, Saturday night, the coaches will start install for the Thursday night game. The players will probably both come in on Sunday. I seriously doubt they'll take a day off for rest and conditioning. What they may do is a walkthrough on Sunday um, and go non-contact, but install starts immediately. So that's that's how most coaches approach Thursdays. You just kind of kind of cram it in and make sure that those guys are – if. I'm hesitant to even say this because I don't want it to lead to something else. Like, they might take, they might go a little lighter in practice on the full week against Wake and Tulane, not because they're discounting those guys, but because they know they have to cram in two games in like five days or whatever. They don't want to burn their guys out, so they probably can go full speed in the short week prep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not rocket science. Um, but no, they are not. The biggest misconception here, and I'm rambling, is that you are you, you're in front of your quarterback and you're showing him footage, or you're you're putting in plays for an opponent that is a week away on the schedule. You're not doing that. If there's someone else in front of you, that's the team that you're working on, flat out. Now they may do technique drills, they may work on stuff that's evergreen that they think will be beneficial to them against the next opponent the better opponent, but they are not simultaneously game planning. They don't do that. The coaches do. The players do not. 
Right. That that was going to be really the only thing I had to add there was that, um, yeah, I mean, they've got, I think I counted seven, Louisville has like seven quality control guys and or graduate assistants. Um, they will, they will have people looking ahead. Uh, their players will not in any way, shape or form be looking ahead. And, and really it wouldn't make any sense to, for them because yeah, I mean, it really is for the players. They come in and they, you know, the game, the play, they, they do their walkthroughs and their non-contact stuff. They, they get introduced to this week's tweaks. They do this and that, uh, like the week is pretty stable for them. Um, and especially if you're already on a, an abbreviated, I think they would just, yeah, I don't think anything changes there for the players. There's no sense in the players looking ahead because um, they're just, they're, all they're asked to do is execute the game plan. Um, and the game plan won't be finalized probably until Saturday. Uh, so there's no reason for them to, for them to go down that road. Um, I definitely am going to write more about this game. It's super unique. Obviously, the timing is amazing, and they're both great. But to play a non-conference game against a quality opponent this late in the year, um, it, it's, it's pretty unique. Um, it's tougher, too, on a short week because if it's a team that you have film of your own team against can, of, over, like, two or three or five years, it's a lot easier. And they don't have that. So, uh, it's um, gosh, we're talking a lot about a game on November 17th, but that's how large it looms when you, again, just for the record, stomp Florida State. And, stomp uh, here's, uh, here's a more immediate question for us. Um, <laughs> this, we don't usually answer these, but I'm just going to uh, because right. I can do it very quickly. Our friend Scott. Big fan of your podcast. Wanted to know if my Nevada Wolfpack had a chance to beat uh, PAPN favorite Purdue this weekend. Of course. Yeah, they I have got, a chance yeah. to beat uh, Purdue. Do we need weekend. to break that down or just yes? No, no that's – yeah, they, they, the answer is yes, of course. You should always think that you have a very good chance of beating Purdue. Um, you could cross-stitch that on a pillow. You always have a chance to beat Purdue. So, uh, and then one more question, and this is – we are overlapping ca- uh, topics a little bit today, but – oh. You know, oh well, it's our podcast. Um, our friend Alan says, uh, "Here are three facts we know. One, every team that has won the title in, rec- in the recruiting rankings has more four or five star players than three and two star players. Two, Louisville just beat Florida State by forty three points. Three, Louisville's five year recruiting ranking is number thirty nine. Based on their recruiting profile, they should be in a tier with Northwestern and Arizona, and not be a team capable of beating FSU by six touchdowns. So my question is: Is Louisville actually a title contender? Would winning a title with that level of mediocrity on the recruiting trail be the biggest example of college football usurpation uh, in recent memory? Um, yeah, this is. I, I think it's it's kind of funny what uh, the the blue chip ratio that Bud has come up with uh, through the years. It's funny, like, you know, we interact in Slack and everything, and I'll end up, you know, by the end of the season, I, I tend to be rooting for the teams that are ranked pretty high in my, in my uh, ratings just so, you know, the ratings look good. Uh, Bud also ends up rooting for the teams that, are, that recruit very well so that his blue chip ratio looks good. But in, in, in both cases, that's like immediate gratification. In both cases, it's about long-term trends. Like, Bud's blue chip theory isn't going to die if uh, – a team ranked 39th in five-year recruiting wins the national title. Among other things, you can pretty clearly st- uh, point out that Bobby Petrino coaches offenses up and he has the best quarterback in the country. The end. That's, that's enough uh, for, for that. Plus, recruiting rankings don't take transfers into, a, uh, into account. And if you look at Louisville's uh, defensive too deep, there are a lot of former four-star guys on there because they, ca- they just came from other schools first. Um, so that, that wouldn't make them like top 10 recruiters, but I bet it would put them in the top 30 at least. But it's about odds. Um, and even if a team that isn't, um, 
you know, in the top five or 10 of recruiting, if even if they do win the national title at some point, that doesn't make it like a, that doesn't kill the theory. It just means that the odds of it are, were really, were really, really long and that you needed a quarterback as good, as good as Lamar Jackson and a coach as good at coaching offense as Bobby Petrino to make it happen. Um, but no, generally speaking, just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean, doesn't mean it never will. You think back to, to previous years, it wouldn't have taken that many breaks for like a Kansas state to make the national title game in 2012, or, you know, it would have taken one break for Oregon to win the national title in 2010, uh, you know, a certain wrist hitting the ground, um, you know, they, well, I guess they wouldn't have won the national title for sure that way, but you know, regardless, they were a breakaway from winning the title, but that doesn't kill the theory just because there's an example of it not happening. So uh, I cheer for the team to return my phone calls, by the way. And I, you know, I'm good with this. Theory and too. Wyoming. I, I have certain coaches that I've talked to more than others that I very much, uh, you know, it would it would behoove me greatly for them to win. So yeah, I guess I've got that going for me too. But no, Cheerful, regardless, yeah. of course they are a contender because we just saw what happened. And the other thing that the blue chip ratio discusses, it, I mean, it's it's like a way of hinting at depth. Um, you know, you can sustain more injuries maybe if you've recruited more blue chippers. And so if Louisville has a season where they don't lose anybody important and they've got the best quarterback in the country and Bobby Petrino coaching the team, absolutely they can win the national title. It's just they skated by despite it. What do you like this week? I know that you haven't been super familiar with the schedule, so I'm going to go ahead and, and take you through a couple. Um, right off the top, it's another good 11 a.m. Um, Florida State at South Florida. Who boy. That's a job watcher for one, uh, Willie Taggart. That's a win, and you are most definitely in, and probably in at a really good Power 5 job like I've been talking about. Um, Georgia is at Ole Miss at 11. A little wonky there in the scheduling. I guess it's because Ole Miss is a two-loss team. I don't know. Um, that's a game that is a – that's going to be a call to arms to Ole Miss. Um we touched on this during the review. I think Ole Miss is just the team that isn't – it's not so much of a failure of play calling, although it's not fantastic. It's not really – it's not even so much Chad Kelly forcing the, forcing his hand and creating crippling turnovers. It's that they're just – they're really lacking balance, and they're they're yeah. running themselves out, and they don't have the defensive depth to compensate for right now. Yeah, even for an Ole Miss By the way, that doesn't mean balance. that I'm backdoor endorsing time of possession as a stat, you buttholes. Well, I mean, the one thing we know about Georgia so far is that they uh, can win close games. Um, we don't really know much else. They, they For two straight weeks, Nick Chubb has been very, very uh, – had, had, has had very mediocre rushing totals. Um, and the defense, the defense against Missouri last week looked terrible and then great in the same game. So um, hard to get a read on Georgia. I think, I think we have a pretty good read on Ole Miss, and that's that plan A is awesome for them. And if you force them to plan B – uh, things might get uh, wonky. I'm going to assume that Ole Miss wins this game, but you're, I mean, this is a huge, huge game for Ole Miss. Georgia can lose this. If they lose this and then they turn around and beat Tennessee next week, uh, they're still in really good shape. Like, they're, th- at that point, they, you know, it's basically beat Florida and you, you've probably won the SEC East. Uh, Ole Miss, whatever their goals are on the table, you know, technically the SEC West is still on the table, but just, you know, in terms of posting a big win total, you, uh, you absolutely have to win this game. So, um, that's going to be a really fun one. Wisconsin-Michigan State also early. Um, yeah, rapid fire here. Where I don't even know. I mean, again, not a marquee week four, just deep as hell. Deep as hell. Um, Wisconsin-Michigan State, um, you're, I don't think that's even going to be a game, but we'll get to that in a second because we're going to talk about Wisconsin. Um, Boise, if they're going to stumble, I, maybe Oregon State. Uh, uh, yeah, I would hope not. Yeah, probably not. Um, I, I mean, that's yeah. 
Um, Penn State at Michigan. Penn State and Tennessee are two teams I just can't not watch this year because of all the weirdness around those programs. Different flavors of weirdness, no doubt. Yep. But um, I'm expecting both to probably lose this week. Uh, let's see, Penn State. At, well, yeah, Penn State at Michigan. Yeah, they 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 need as as we discussed. Pitt, James Franklin because he lost to Pitt. Now he kind of needs one of these. It's probably not going to be this one though. Uh, Michigan. Pittsburgh at North Carolina. That is not going to be. It's on ESPNU. It's going to be buried up against the. What I do, we just said, Penn State, Michigan, Florida, Tennessee, um, Pitt road loss at Oklahoma State. North Carolina opens the season with a loss against Georgia. If Pitt's going to be a thing, they got to win this game. Yeah, and this one, uh, the ACC Coastal is as weird as ever right now. Um, I, I've got a projections piece probably coming up tomorrow about it, but um, the you know between Virginia Tech, Miami, Pitt, and North Carolina, there's a really, really, really interesting division race in here, and not just because and this isn't just the you know they're all mediocre, therefore you know. This, the seven-way tie at four and four is probably not going to happen this year. But there are a lot of really interesting teams there. And Miami has by far looked like the best of those four teams so far. But they've also got by far the hardest schedule um, in this projection post. You know, spoilers and all. Um, in terms of odds to get to six and two or better, Virginia Tech has a 33% chance. North Carolina, 27. Pitt, 20. And Miami, 20. Uh, whoever loses the North Carolina Pitt game goes to fourth in, in line. They would it, it wouldn't be a killer, um, but they would need then quite a bit of help to come back up and uh, finish strong. So that one uh, is a very telling game. Uh, and then at 4.30, well, actually 4.30 and 5, that weird time in between, uh, we've got two really interesting games, Colorado, Oregon, uh, Colorado at Oregon, which I assume Oregon will win, but it's certainly more interesting than it was Possibly. Uh, like a month ago. Yeah. And then LSU-Auburn. Anxiety Bowl, the real one. That's right. The, no, the, this is like n- hashtag no, no for real this time. Although I will say this. If South Carolina beats Kentucky, I think that may be the first firing we get. Yeah, that's not even anxiety at this point. No, 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 no. That's just that's funeral procession totally. Um, yeesh. I, I mean, I don't know if I really want to break down LSU and Auburn. I'm just going to kind of pull up a chair the same way I did last week for that doubleheader. You know, I think A and M was a more quality team. Now that's that's obvious. They they don't belong in the in the morass, the butt end of the uh, of the Western Division. But this these two teams, boy, is yeah, bad. I, I I still, I mean, I, obviously, I'm not thinking a national title for LSU. I still think pretty highly of LSU overall, um, especially since at the very least they seem to have found competence at quarterback. Um, you know, if, if they are full strength or as full strength as they're going to be at this point and they just get um, that kind of Matt Mock level or not quite Matt Mock level but not bad kind of play, fine. Um, and then you can rely on the running game and your play-action weapons and a defense that's still pretty good and uh, you'll be fine. Auburn has a lot more questions to answer, I think. But it's also uh, in Auburn, so you know maybe that changes everything. Jumping ahead of the evening, is the UCLA good? I think so. Pretty I good. Think so right. I think Stanford's better, but um, you know. Oh no, I, I, I don't doubt that Stanford's better, but the the game is in the Rose Bowl. Um, so UCLA loses by a touchdown. Tough road environment at a at A and M um, to open the season. That's okay. They do what they're supposed to against UNLV, and then they they kind of they gut it out. Sports writer cliche. They gut it out in, in Provo, which is always a not fun place to play. Um, is this a game? Well, I mean, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, if we lean on S&P for, for 
answers to this type of thing. They, they're given a 51% chance of winning. Um, so, I mean, that alone says yes. Now, I, I think we both like Stanford a little bit more, so that's fine. Uh, but if they do win this one, then, I mean, they've got like 66% or higher every single game the rest of the way until USC. And USC at their current rate of um, volatility between now and November 19th when they play USC, any number of things could have happened to USC. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if they if they beat Stanford, then they're su- they've suddenly got, among other things, they've got a non-zero chance of finishing 11-1 and uh, heading into the Pac-12 title game. So Yeah, no, that's, that is actually an interesting point because after Stanford, it's a, it is manageable. <laughs> it is a lot of things, and manageable is one of them. At uh, – <laughs> Arizona at home, at Arizona State, in Pullman, Utah at Colorado, Oregon State, and then USC on the 19th. That, right, and we can, we can certainly point out, like, at Arizona State is never, is, it, yeah. is always potential for weird. At Colorado. Who knows what Colorado, Colorado how fun this right. thing is going to get. Official team of SB Nation, Colorado, go Bucks. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, no, if they win this game, then they're kind of the, the, the big favorite for the, the Pac-12 South at that point. And, um and they really become kind of a, at least a, at the very least a dark horse playoff contender for a while. So yeah, big, huge game for them. Obviously, big game for Stanford as well because the the challenges don't stop for Stanford after UCLA. Uh, they got to go at Washington the very next Friday night. So um, you know this is yeah very very cool game to watch. Um, we touched on Oklahoma State Baylor briefly. You also have Cal at Arizona State. Um, Nebraska Northwestern technically a game in the Big Tw- in the Big Ten West. Yeah, no, it's it's a football contest. I don't, you know, wasn't really going to mention that using words, but yeah, it, it will take place. Uh, it will happen. Cal uh, Arizona State's going to be fun as hell. And go ahead and set your DVR to last four extra hours. By the way, I meant to rant on this on on Sunday, but we don't have time for rants on Sunday because we are going rapid fire. Rant. Um, Games are too long. Games are way too long. Uh, not only, like, I, I think I set the, I can't remember what it was. I, maybe it was only for an extra hour, but I didn't actually DVR the end of California, Texas. It, the DVR had ended before the end of the game. Um, Georgia, Missouri lasted four hours. Georgia, Missouri, Eastern Michigan lasted four hours. Um, they are slipping in three-minute commercial breaks now. Um I, at least, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's what my skip ahead 30 seconds, uh, you know, when, when I'm watching DVR games, I'm like, wait a second, I just skipped ahead six times. Um, they are, I, and it's just bad. It's a bad experience. My dad went to the Missouri Eastern Michigan game. He's like, I just have no interest in standing here uh, during a blowout for four hours. Um, it's, it's, a, it's miserable. And even North Dakota State, Iowa, the fastest, almost the fastest possible game on the schedule lasted beyond the 11 to 2 window. It lasted over three hours. Um, It's just, this is not, we cannot go this direction. And I understand, like, from a TV standpoint, this is a tough place to be in because live sports are all you've got now. Uh, And so, of course, you're going to try to cram in as many commercials as possible. Um, But at some point, you run the risk of losing viewers because they can't stand to watch four-hour events. So um, that's just uh, that. That was a rant I meant to give the other day. The end. I just know that if I'm going to watch California play. That I better be in a really comfortable chair. Yeah, and also kind of have a distraction. So there, there are tiers of shows that I'll watch with my wife where I'm 100 percent invested and I, I don't have any any kind of distraction. And then there's also shows where I'll just millennial it, like 
Golden Age. Well, who cares? Um, like if she watches Orange is the New Black, I want to watch that show, but I probably want to be doing something else. So I may have something else in front of me, like an iPad or whatever. Um, Cal is that game. I, I cannot, even as a professional sports writer, do the Cal thing. I did a Cal, I did a Cal game in person, and it was brutal. I did the Oregon game a couple of years ago. It was it, it, like the game lasted seven seven days. That's how long I was there. I look like I had a beard. I looked like a superhero in a journey on his origin story. You know, I was in tatters and rags at the end of it. It was awful. Um, okay, I, don't, I, I really don't know where we're at, Bill. Let's go to let's go to the uh, box score. Yeah, let's do that. Um, hey, did you know Wisconsin barely got their asses uh, out of the uh, the trap game against Georgia State? That happened. That's a thing. Yeah, this was, um, it, it, you know, I think I mentioned this on, on our Sunday show, but I did not expect to be spending most of my time um, watching Tennessee, Ohio, and Georgia State, Wisconsin late in the uh, 11 o'clock cycle of games. But that's, you know, that was that was what I found myself in. Um, now, I think I mentioned this as well, but first, uh, first things first, power to Wisconsin for closing because okay. they... <laughs> they look up and they're suddenly behind in the fourth quarter to Georgia State. Georgia State scores on um, nine-yard Kyler Neal run to go up 17-13. From that point forward, it was Wisconsin touchdown, Georgia State three and out, Wisconsin field goal, Georgia State three and out, ball game. Um, so, yes, they, they, they closed the game as well as you possibly can, um, and, and that made a difference. But this box score is weird as hell, and I thought it was yeah. a good one to share this week. Um, so, okay, let's go in with the dumb person first. Um, things that jump out at me, I see uh, – oh, by the way, this will be up on the website as always. Go to um, SBNation.com, look for the podcast name, Play Nobody. Um, entry blog post and we'll have this we'll have this box score up so i'm looking at the box score from the georgia state site that you sent me yes wisconsin had double the first downs yes wisconsin had three times five times six Uh-oh. times the amount of rushing okay net yards wisconsin had Oh, Georgia State actually outpassed them, 269 to 213. Um, Wisconsin outgained them by 100 yards total. Penalties, 5-0, to zero, Georgia State. Wisconsin has zero penalties, really? Okay, so help me here. Where in this, where in this box score does it tell me how the hell this game was so close? Third downs, um, Wisconsin was 8-16 to 16 on third down. Yeah. Georgia State was 4-13. of 13. All right, so my, my instinct now, as I have been trained by you, Sensei, is to go to turnovers. Points right. off turnovers, Georgia State, seven points off turnovers, Wisconsin, none. Yeah, so, that's okay, a, there's a little bit. Um, that's also, points off turnovers is very, very overrated. But um, Why? Well, because point, scoring points off of turnovers is only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is what points are you preventing off of turnovers. You know, if you recover a fumble at the one, you're probably not going to score, but you kept them from scoring seven. So it's just uh, it's an incomplete look at turnovers. Well, you should create a stat for that. Uh, um, <laughs> that's a hell, hell of an idea. All right, so uh, here's I, I don't know, Bill. Like what? What? Now, after turnovers, where, where you know, uh, where else have you been trained to look after turnovers? Something that's not necessarily in the box score. Finishing drives. Yeah, third downs. Um, well, no, but I'm talking about with the information that I have in front of me. Third downs I'm looking at after turnovers. 
Um, so if you, if you scroll way to the bottom, this is actually, I didn't see it at first, but on the third to last page of this PDF that, uh, again, we're linking at SB Nation, okay. uh, you, you get the drive chart uh, that shows you, ah. <clears throat> excuse me, you, that shows you problem number one. Uh, Wisconsin in the first half, they get to Georgia's uh, GS, GSU's 23, kick a field goal. Get to the 10 and kick a field goal. Get to the 6 and lose a fumble. Get to the 38 and punt. Get to the 12 and miss a field goal. Um, so they had only two drives finish in their side of the field all day, uh, but they only scored, what, 23 points. Um, so that was problem number one. They had eight scoring opportunities, and on average with eight scoring opportunities, you're going to end up around 35. They, they had 23. Um, so, yeah, that was probably the biggest thing uh, involved. And the rest, of, you know, you, you combine that with turnovers, and you're in, suddenly Georgia State's looking pretty good. Like they um, – the turnover margin was plus two for Georgia State, probably based on fumbles and, and passes defense, probably should have been about plus zero or so or slightly in Wisconsin's favor. So there was some luck involved there with Georgia State. But look at the Georgia uh, State drives. So uh, oh yeah, yeah. I tell you what, what jumps out at me is look, uh, look at the, the Georgia State drives. So their third drive is 13 plays, 66 yards, a five and a, uh, almost six-minute drive. They miss a field goal. So you're driving the ball efficiently on Wisconsin's defense. Go down to third quarter where they kind of break it open, I guess you could say, uh, or make it a game. Ten play, 49-yard drive, kick a field goal. Six-yard, 75-yard drive, touchdown. And then what looks to be, yeah, so the, the drive they got off the interception, three plays, 68 yards, touchdown. Yeah, They, they were moving they, the ball against Wisconsin's defense in the this, second half. This isn't necessarily a skill you can maintain, but they did a really good job of this game in clustering all their dr- their yards into four drives, basically, and getting points off of three of them. Yeah, uh, and it, I mean, yeah, if they'd scored a touchdown instead of missing a field goal in the first half, that's twenty four points. Uh, but yeah, the rest. So in those four drives, they had uh, like that's the two hundred yards. Otherwise, they went three and out. Not only three and out, but lost twelve yards. Yeah. they went four and out. They went eight plays punt, three and out, and then they finished the game three and out, three and out. So basically, well, put it this way: on every other drive, only one of them had positive yardage over ten. Right. So yeah, they did a. They did. A, if you're going to only get so many yards, you want them to come in about four drives where you score. Uh, and, and Georgia State almost pulled that off, but couldn't. But missed that field goal early. So um, that helped them a lot. Like I said, that's kind of. That's not necessarily something you can maintain. That's more clustering than any sort of, okay, we're going to stink for half the game, but really we're going to try to sustain four drives. No, you're, you're trying to sustain 12 drives. Um, so it's not really a skill they can – but they absolutely took advantage of um, in the second half, and especially in the third quarter when, when Wisconsin started to get a little, a little nervous about the fact that they weren't going away. Um, they scored a kick a field goal, make it 6-3. Uh, Wisconsin makes a 13-3, but they come right back down and score a touchdown, get the pick, score another touchdown. They did everything they could to 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 following the underdog script to win this game. But Wisconsin, in the end, they they did not blow too many opportunities. They just tried to, and um, so it was six nothing at a half. And Georgia State only had 27 plays for 86 yards. Wisconsin had double that, 40 for 201. Right, and they like yeah, at that point they'd had five possessions, all of them had in, ended inside the Georgia State forty, and they had six points. So really, this was if we're it, it's not so much a game about turnovers, it's not so much a game about 
Well, really, it's it's just what what you're doing with your how you're in your drives. That's if if we had to that categorize biggest, this, uh, that was that was probably what I would say is the biggest piece of this. But yeah, and it was yeah, just a weird game. With Georgia State almost pulled off the win with 54, like with 25 fewer snaps, they almost pulled off an upset. So this, I think, for the most part, this just I write this one down as just a football is damn weird sometimes kind of game. I'm not necessarily worried about Wisconsin yet. I'd still probably say they're the best team. Uh, in the Big Ten West, they're also the team with the hardest schedule among contenders in the Big Ten West. So maybe that means I, I like Nebraska's the favorite, but um, but no, I, I I'm not too worried about Wisconsin. This seems to mostly have fallen into a, just a football super weird sometimes category. I agree. All right, Bill. We did a lot of talking. Uh, a little bit of uh, was about Week Four. Um, is there one thing in particular you think we'll know on Sunday? Uh. I always hate these questions because I never feel like I, I always feel like I did a disservice. Um, the Pac-12 South race will have very much uh, defined itself between yeah. Stanford, UCLA, and good on answer, Friday good night. Answer. Friday night, USC, Utah is going to be super weird too. Um, well, we skipped right over that. Also, yeah. I would I would also say the skillet uh, will be TCU at SMU will be kind kind of a game. Yeah, just because TCU's defense isn't very good, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. Oh, Clemson, Georgia Tech's on Thursday. Man, why, I don't know why we duff the, the weeknight games. Sorry. Well, I, thought we, sorry. I thought we were skipping that one intentionally. But, yeah, technically that could be an interesting game, too. It usually yeah. is anyway. I, I really actually didn't mean to future-proof the podcast. I, I just – my <laughs> eye went directly to Saturday. Um, we'll know about the ass end of the SEC West, which is my favorite place to be. Um, we will know about the Pac-12 South, as you said. And I think we will not know anything more about um, Upstarts Louisville and Houston. They both have um, – much less important games. We will, um, man, we're going to know a lot about Tennessee for sure. I don't, <laughs> well, even, yeah. I don't even mean to keep it in the SEC, I, but we're going to know a lot about Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're yeah, we're going to know. That's that's probably the best answer. Pac-12 South is second. Tennessee is number one because they have skated by so drastically, ridiculously, uninspiringly, uh, close to the line, uh, and now they have uh, they have to face one of the better defensive fronts in the country with a uh, an offensive line that has been just terrible so far. So yeah, if they sur- if they survive and they go to Georgia still undefeated next week, that's humongous for Tennessee. Uh, and it's it's so hard to see that actually happening, having watched well, having watched all three Tennessee games. Um, so and maybe that's me benefiting from the fact that I haven't seen as much of Florida. Um, and I could be completely underselling their offense or overselling their offense, I guess. But yeah, that one's that one's going to be super weird. Uh, by the way, before we go, uh, one tidbit: you you mentioned SMU, and that reminded me of something I saw on Twitter a couple days ago um, that I find absolutely, from a pure stat perspective, fascinating. Okay. Right now, uh, SMU is seventh in the country in, in my isolated PPP rating, which is the the what it, it measures the magnitude of your successful plays. Um, they are also 127th in the country uh, in points per scoring opportunity. Wow. So basically, they're going to land big plays. If those big plays don't get them in the end zone, they are not scoring a touchdown. Um, I, I didn't even know that combination was possible. So uh, so, <laughs> so well done to, to SMU in that. I, did, I think that's sort of a backdoor sales pitch on, uh, on TCU-SMU now. There you go. That's right. They're going to get big plays. Watch them kind of blow up against score. TCU's defense. You better you better be lateraling the ball. If you're about to get tackled at the at the TCU ten, you know you're not going to score a touchdown. If you get tackled, you better start lateraling. That's all I'm, I'm going to say. Totally fine with that. All right, as always, we thank you for your time. You can follow Mr. Bill Connolly on Twitter 
at SBN underscore Bill C, and myself on Twitter and Instagram at 38Godfrey. Uh, be sure to subscribe. Be sure to like. Be sure to review. Be sure to heap fawning amounts of praise <laughs> on us at SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast for. Bill, you want to come back and do this Sunday? Uh, yeah, because uh, you know we're getting a pretty good response, so I guess we have to. And by the way, you can also follow me on Instagram if you like pictures of uh, my cat, my pets, and random travel food. See, well, what I did, the reason why I added Instagram is I have a 38 Godfrey for the bidness. Just for I the really business. should. I yeah. should do that, but I, I can't hardly maintain what I've got so far. Yeah, so I got one for the you. I got one for the business, I got one for the personal. That we keep that private. I I, I don't keep pictures of my dog private, but I gotta I, I gotta maintain an air of mystery, Bill. See you guys on Sunday. <laughs>